I love the variety you get when you're working through the Psalms, doing a few at a time. We did one to five at the start of the year. We've been going through six, seven, eight. Uh, we'll do a couple more before we get into Genesis. Uh, we were going to start Genesis next week, but with camp and uh, this past week, my granddad passed away and I'll be taking his funeral. So doing so many things and starting new books was just a bit too much. So we'll continue in the Psalms over the next couple of weeks before we start uh, Genesis. But just the variety over the past few weeks, we've looked at suffering and rejoicing. We looked at the wrath of God and the grace of God. And finally, well, not finally, but here in Psalm 8, we look at worship and his majesty, his creative work and his salvation plan through Christ, all in just a few verses, nine verses, a, a beautiful song of praise to God as David, King David, sits and meditates on the creation that is around him. So let me read it. We'll take some moments of silence and then I'll pray for us. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, still our hearts before you. We have so many things running around our mind, so many things to even do today or tomorrow, so many tasks to complete. Lord, I pray that now, right now, you may still us by the Holy Spirit, that we may be taken from here to meditate on a time when we were in nature, a time when we were in the mountains or the valleys or out on the ocean, or, Lord, when we were in the country or the bush or looking up at the night sky. Father, take us to a place where we are not surrounded by the stress and anxiety of our life, but rather stilled in a awe of your creation, that it may humble us and lower our view of ourselves, Lord, and heighten a view of you, that we may cry out with John the Baptist, decrease us and increase Christ. 
Take us to a place, Lord, where we sit and look at Christ crucified or Christ resurrected or the, or the ascended Christ on the throne. Take our minds, Lord, from the physical and set them upon the spiritual that we may just comprehend a little more of what it means to bear your image and to display your glory to the world. Lord, we give you praise and honour, and this is for you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think of the most excellent thing you have seen with your eyes or maybe a sound that you have heard with your ears or a food that you've tasted with your mouth, or a smell that you've smelt with your nose. I want you to think of something that you may have touched that has caused you to go, hmm, this is good. That's caused you to be detached maybe for a moment from your current circumstance and focused on whatever it is that you are enjoying in that moment. I was in and out of church as a kid, and I think my experience was that you shouldn't desire or enjoy things. That was probably my summary. I left church probably around 12, but, but by 12, my, my experience was desires were wrong. Hate your desires. Beat down your desires. Your feelings are all wrong. You can't trust anything. There's some truth that probably needs expanding on and teaching, but God created us with five senses. God created us in a physical body and a physical world. Genesis 1 and 2, before sin comes into the world, God put Adam and Eve in a garden, a garden that had sights and sounds and touches and smells and food to enjoy, a garden that had one another in it to be delighted in. I want you to think about moments throughout this message when you've been in creation and you've felt an experience where you've just delighted in that moment, enjoyed that moment. Now, of course, the problem comes when that created thing becomes the only thing. When that person that you love so dearly or that food that you enjoy so much or that place that you want to be at all the time becomes the only thing. And the reason that is a problem is because they are finite joys. They have a limited, a limited time while ever they will sustain your enjoyment or that satisfy your desire. But God created us in a physical creation to enjoy finite joys that point us to the infinite joy himself that take us from the physical that surrounds us to the spiritual that is above us and around us, yet we can't see. So whether it's food, exercise, money, drugs, alcohol, sex, travel, or other things, better things, maybe children, spouse, friends, apart from drugs, all these things can be enjoyed in a non-sinful way. All these things can be enjoyed in a non-sinful way, but they cannot be the ultimate joy. 
your spouse, your friends, your children. Even if you say, I live for family and that is my motivation in everything, it cannot be your ultimate joy. It is missed place. What we need and how we enjoy these things is to point us to one who is greater, to point us to the one who created it and formed it and designed it, the one who said, family is good and I created family. Marriage is good and I created marriage and it, and it draws our attention to him. This vast beauty of the world and the so many different types of beauty that we see is all there to point to the vastness of God, to point to the all the more beautiful creator. In Romans 1, it tells us that creation is there so that people are without an excuse. They have no excuse. This beautiful world that we live in and the things that we get to enjoy and taste and feel are there so that no one can say there is a God. Sorry, no one can say that there's no God. In Psalms, it says that only a fool says there is no God. A fool. A fool says that this world came from nothing. A fool says that this world was an accident. Creation, Psalm 19, is there to declare that there is a God. And he is to be enjoyed. And we enjoy him through enjoying his creation. So every taste or every sight, every smell that we delight in and enjoy draws us to wonder and ponder and long to know the one who created this small joy. As we look at Psalm 8, we are drawn to the doctrine of the beauty of God. A doctrine that I, was never, I never experienced in church as a young person. A doctrine that seemed to have been left, a lot, uh, left aside, but God is beautiful. He's stunningly beautiful. We know that because of his creation. We know that from the descriptions in Isaiah and Ezekiel and John in Revelation. The God is a stunning God who is displaying his glory throughout the world. And when we see him, we would be flawed in this physical body, but we'll be given a spiritual body to take in his beauty. Would we as a church long to study the beauty of God? And the way the Hebrews would write it, they would say the beauties, the beauties of God, plural the beauties of God? Would we meditate on them, think through them, and would they take us from our lowly state and humble us even further so that God is elevated as we see how King David was humbled by God's creation? As we do, we'll try and work verse by verse through the majority of this. Let's unpack it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. We cannot move too quickly past the introduction, O Lord, our Lord. The writer being King David, who himself was a lord over people, starts a song, a song of praise, a song of meditation, a song of wonder, 
And he starts it so personal and intimate. Oh Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh. Oh Yahweh, our Lord, our King, our Master, our Ruler. But will we not skip over the word our? This is an incredible word because it makes God so personal to us. We can say he is our God, our Lord, our ruler, our king. Such a small, simple phrase of introduction to speak to this holy God, this holy creator, we can say our. The Israelites were God's people, but all the more the church today are God's redeemed, spirit-filled bride. And we as a church, when we come to pray, can say, our Father. An intimate introduction to God, an intimate welcome to God in our life. It's been said that this is a song of the astronomer, the astronomer of old who would meditate on the heavens. As we think through this passage, we need to sort of put ourselves back without all the scientific knowledge that we've got today and sit back to where David was, just in a valley, looking and wondering at all of creation around him, particularly the night sky. How majestic is your name in all the earth? What a thought to ponder. As we wander about this world, as we go through the mundane Would we pause and contemplate the majesty of his name in all the earth? As Isaiah said, when Isaiah gets the, as Isaiah heard, as he got the glimpse of Christ in the throne room in Isaiah 6, and the angels sing this heavenly song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. As we wander about our day-to-day life, would we pause from our daily anxieties to look around us and think about what we're seeing? How often it is that we're so busy that we're not even there to take in the green grass or the beautiful trees that surround us or the blue sky with the clouds that make pictures or the hot sun or the cool breeze? Have we become so busy that even the small, simple things that surround us, we don't even acknowledge. It's taken me 30 years or 12 years as a Christian, I guess, to slow down in life. When I turned 30, I suddenly realized maybe I should slow down a little bit and not think that I need to do ministry at my pace but rather do it at God's pace. And God's pace is one that allows us to take in what surrounds us, to rest in knowing that God has all things in his hands in control. Jesus teaches us about it, that he cares for the ravens. He feeds them, the lilies of the field. He clothes them in such beauty. How majestic is your name in all the earth? As David sits back and slows down the busyness of his kingly life, war after war, 
battle after battle as he goes through judging the people and determining what's right and wrong, as he sets laws and builds a palace, as he has opposition from his son, still has this time to go, God, how majestic is your name? God, how glorious is your name? He continues to say that you have set your glory above the heavens. Now, we've said before, but when a Hebrew writer wants to make a point, they sort of layer repeated things on top of one another. So he said, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And now he's thinking of the night sky, the heavens or the the sky above him, being that if you didn't know all you knew about space, you'd probably think the heavens were space, wouldn't you? Lying down, looking at the night sky, you see the stars about you and the moon, all that without any sort of light pollution, you would then consider those to be the heavens. And as David lies there looking at the night sky, thinking this is where the heavens are, but God's glory is even greater. He's emphasizing his point that God's majestic name is seen through all of creation and there's parts of creation that are just there to scream forth his praise. And if I got the opportunity to speak to someone who's just studying the universe with their whole life, I'll just say, you know why it's there? To bring glory to God. There's no life out there. You can study it all you want, but it's there to bring glory to his name. Stars, planets, universes, galaxies, whatever is out there, it is displaying his praise. And David, as he sits and marvels and lies in the green grass and looks up at the starry night sky, declares, your glory is even greater. Your beauty is even more beautiful than this. We don't see the stars in Newcastle. Maybe if you go to the beach, you might see some. But I would encourage every one of us to take time out from the city, to go to a place where there is little light pollution and to gaze upon the stars, to consider the many millions that are there, the moon, and to ponder the reality that God created it. God created it and he put them there one by one and knows them all. This is the immense worth of our God, the extreme intelligence of God, that he knows all the stars and he fixed them in place. And he made one galaxy to have one planet that had his people, his image bearers on it. As David ponders this reality, his conclusion is God is far more beautiful. His glory is above this. So David may sit back today, if he could, and look at the pictures from the Hubble telescope that we can see, and he would look at them and he would ponder them and he would enjoy them. And then when someone would say, why is it there? He would say, to give him glory. And then he would see another one and he would say to give him more glory. 
and it's all for his glory. I can't say that for sure, but I assume that that's what David would say. And everything he saw would lead him to continue to ask that same question, how majestic is your name? Every new picture that comes, every new understanding of space or the earth or the depths of the sea would make him cry out in praise, how majestic. What end is your glory? What end is your beauty, O God? To which the response would be, there is none. There is no end to an infinite God's beauty and majesty. But what is God's glory? Have you ever pondered the thought of what is God's glory? It's a hard question to answer, actually. I would probably go as far to say it's, it's potentially impossible to exa- exactly lay out what is God's glory, but it, I would say it's his infinite beauty and greatness and holiness on display for the world. It's his infinite beauty, greatness and holiness on display to the world. So it's whatever we see God in. But verse 2 takes us to another place, and it's a really interesting comparison. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. How to steal the enemy and the avenger. So David has started with this beautiful introduction, Lord, our Lord. And then he goes, how majestic is your name in all the earth, all creation? How majestic or how high is your glory above the heavens, the skies? And now we go down to something different, something weaker, something more dependable, something smaller, babes and infants. What we see in David's description is that God is glorified through all of earth, the highest mountains, the lowest valleys, the snow-capped mountains, the heat of summer, yet he is praised and his glory is extended through weakness and dependability of a child. God is displaying his glory through the mountains but his glory and his strength is established through infants and babies. This is a great comparison that David is making, is that God is this magnificently powerful, holy God, yet he cares and loves and uses the most insignificant, the most weak, the most dependable in his kingdom and in establishing his strength. It's an encouragement for us because we are incredibly weak, an incredibly weak part of his creation compared to the ocean and the sun. But as we think about this idea of out of the mouths of babes and infants, God God establishes his strength. We see a new grandeur, a new glory, a new innocence of a child. One of my favorite moments is watching children with their parents and their children becomes a better evangelist or a more bold evangelist than their parent does. 
Here's the, here's the circumstance that I will put before you. You're, you're a parent and you're having a conversation with a non-Christian friend. And of course, you're a little worried about what maybe they might think of you, so you don't push too hard, but your child out of nowhere suddenly goes, do you believe in Jesus? Have you had that experience? I've seen it many a times. Because when you teach children something, they take it on wholeheartedly. And if they believe it, they believe it with their whole heart. They know that there is God. And they put this awkwardness in the room. And it goes quiet. As the, the parent sits there and goes, oh, I don't know what to say. Should I apologize? No, please don't apologize. Do not apologize for your children asking someone if they believe in Jesus. And in this moment, this child has established God's strength and challenged an adult on whether they believe in the holy God. That's why we should teach our children the word of God. That maybe they would challenge us to be more bold in establishing God's strength among his enemies and avengers. I remember the, the first time I was asked this question, but what happens after Jesus uh, overthrows the tables and cleanses the temple? Does anyone know what happens? I couldn't, I couldn't answer the question as well, but children came in and praised and danced. And in Matthew 21, 16, Jesus quotes this phrase. The Pharisees are there, they're angry because the children are praising Jesus. And he quotes this phrase and he says, babes and infants will establish my strength. They will declare my praise. Children lead the praise of Jesus. Children came to Jesus and Jesus welcomed them in, in the midst of Pharisees. Pharisees, these highly educated, highly prideful men, children praise him, praise Jesus and establish his strength. If we look throughout the scripture, the weakness that God uses in people, that Jesus came as an infant and a baby, that Moses was set out into a sea or a rough river in a basket. We see that God uses innocence, weakness, humility in order to make us feel small, in order to make us humbled, in order to remind us that we ourselves are the work of his fingers, which is where David ends up in verse 3 and 4. He continues his pondering of creation and he he asks some questions. And he says, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? As David makes this great comparison between the high heavens and the beauty and power of space to the innocence of children, he comes to a place of wondering, a wondering about God's relationship with mankind. He firstly gives credit where credit is due. And he says, God is the creator of all earth, all the earth. 
God is the one who, with his fingers, creates. Don't you love the simplicity that God created with his fingers? Not his hands. Right here he says, the moon and the stars are the work of his fingers. Makes the work seem easy, which it is for God. Yet as David ponders these comparisons, the heavens, the earth, the moons and the stars, the innocence of children's children, he comes to a place of feeling small and in, insignificant. Small and insignificant is where all of us need to be brought. If we don't come to a place of being small and insignificant, we never come to a place of bowing our knee to God. We never come to a place of being poor in spirit. Oh, how we need the reality of our smallness. You see, the sun and the moon, they've been the same since day dot. They've seen every one of the days of creation from start and they will see it to finish. Yet we see, as Psalm 90 says, 70 Years of those days, or for reason of strength, 80. According to Psalm 90, anything over 80 is overtime. We are a very small part of God's creation, yet we are a significantly big part of His creation. But let's press in a little more on becoming small. We need to be humbled. Pride is the root of all sin. In our life, wherever you find sin, find pride in it because there's pride there. And you need, to un- you need to work through the root of pride to humble yourself and allow God's grace to overthrow that pride in order to overcome your sin. A couple of quotes said from people on this passage. A survey of the solar system moderates pride and promotes humility. How good it is for us to ponder creation. How good it is for us to lie under the night sky. In order for us to remember our place in this world and how high God is above us. Another guy, Chambers, says... This is mu- there is much in the night sky to lift our hearts to holy contemplation. Co- contemplation. The moon and the stars, what are they? They are detached from this world and lift us above it. We feel drawn from earth and, earth and rise in lofty daydreaming itself from this little theatre of human passion and anxiety. The heavens take us from daydreaming and pondering this simple life. Human passion and anxiety, it takes us to another place outside of the physical and onto the spiritual world of God. And it reminds us that this home is our temporal home. This home is not where we will be forever. In fact, we all have an expiry date which God has already set. How clear it is in verse 4 that this should be the Christian heart. What are we, Lord? 
that you are mindful of us, that you care for us. The Christian heart is to come to this place, this conclusion along with King David and say, Lord, what are we? Or who are we? Why do you care for us? Why do you love us? Of course, we can end in some horrible conclusions that elevate ourselves. But the correct correct answer is to go back to Genesis 1 and the creation mandate of mankind. And he says that God created us, man and woman, in his image and likeness. Out of all the species on earth, out of all his creation, he gave one species his image and likeness. We are different to everything else. We are not the same as animals or any other creation. We have God's image and likeness in us. We are to display God to his creation. The moon doesn't get that. The sun, the animals don't get that. Humans get that. And there's a great heretical teaching of evolution out there that claims that humans just progressed quicker than others on an accidental basis. No, we are created in the image of likeness through God's ordained plan and purpose. So what is man that you are mindful of him? What is, what is the son of man that you care for him? His glory. God's glory, God's mirror to the world. That we would love and show kindness. That we would show compassion. That we would be creative. All things that God has in himself. So God cares for us. God is mindful of you and me because we display his glory to the world. Yet we are damaged and broken. We're cursed under the weight of sin and therefore our glory that we display is often ourselves and not to God. And that is where we need Christ. And of course this psalm is pointing to Christ. When we read on in verse 5 it says you have made him a little lower you have you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. As we reflect on creation the fall of man we see God's pursuit of them as well. We are called to remember Adam in creation. We're called to remember that he was created to rule over. He was created to have dominion over this world. He was created to display God's glory, yet sin entered in. So we need to be called to one who is greater, a better Adam, a new creation, Christ himself. Because when we read this passage, Hebrews interprets it as Christ. And they add a few words. Hebrews 2, 6 and 7. Listen to the extra words that Hebrews adds in verse 5. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while 
lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. The writer of Hebrews puts in, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. The writer of Hebrews points us to the fact that Christ is a better Adam, one who will fulfill the law, one who will glorify God with all that he does, being that he is God in human flesh. When we read this passage, we see this is ultimately pointing us from Genesis 1 to Jesus, that Adam failed in his order to glorify God, that he failed in his mandate to have dominion and rule, but Christ succeeds completely. And that Christ came down who was above the angels, who was the creator of all things, and he lowered himself under the angels for a little while. While he was on earth, he submits to the Father's will, the one who is, he is equal to. He submits to the Father's rule in order to show what it looked like to glorify God, in order to show what it meant to fulfill the whole law, in order to be the perfect living sacrifice for us, the one who would die, defeat death, and rise in glory and honor. We see this beautiful picture in King David's writing that we need a better Adam, that we ourselves cannot succeed, but Christ himself, when walked on this earth, lived for the glory of God, lived to be obedient completely to the Father's will and has dominion over this earth. So verse 5, uh, 6, 7, and 8 talk about this dominion that Christ has, but that we claim in Christ as new creations. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Of course, this is twofold. It speaks of Adam's creation mandate to rule over creation, that we as the creation that is in God's image and likeness are to care for and rule and produce from this land that he has given us in order to glorify God through it, yet we do it for ourselves in rebellion. Yet Christ, Christ who is the better Adam, he rules. He rules with dominion over the works of his hands. He rules and he will rule completely when all things are put under his feet. In Corinthians 15, it says, death will be the last enemy put under his feet. When we look at this psalm, we're seeing Genesis 1 and 2 pointing us to that new creation again. When Christ rules, when there will be no more enemies, no more death, no more sin, and he rules completely over this creation. Yet while we are here in this cursed world, as God's redeemed people, God's forgiven people in Christ, we are brought back to the mandate of Genesis 1, to live as his people, his church, to have dominion over the works of his hands, to bring glory to him through our workplace, through our parenting, through our family, through our fellowship, our friendship, 
We are called back to have relationships, not just with ourselves, but a relationship that rules over creation and enjoys and delights in creation that leads us to worship God of all creation. The conclusion that David comes to is where he started. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David repeats what he started with as he ponders the creation, as he thinks through his own sinfulness and compares it and says, what am I? Why are you mindful of me? As he thinks about the fact that he is mindful, God is mindful of man because we are made in his likeness and image, because God's glory dwells in us. And we have... The greatest joy because when we read this, we have Christ's interpretation and Christ says it's about me. It's about Jesus. It's about him fulfilling all that Adam couldn't, all that you couldn't, all that I couldn't. He fulfills it completely, wholeheartedly. He is the one who lives completely for the Lord's glory. And he dies in his absolute perfection in order to claim us in himself. So where does the psalm leave us? The psalm leaves us in the new creation. The psalm leaves us as new creations, saying, decrease me, make me small, O Lord, so that I would worship you with everything I do and everything I have. Because that's what I will do for all eternity, forever and ever. When you come again and create new heavens and new earths, I will be there worshipping you forever. So it calls us now, church, to worship him as we enjoy and delight in creation, as we taste, see and touch and feel and smell all of what's around us, as we work hard at our careers as we have family and delight in family, it draws us to bow our knee to the one who created it all and say, glory is yours. So that when people look at our lives, they see Christ and they praise Christ. Will we be a church that delights in the beauties of God and is drawn to worship? as we see the beauties that he's created. Let me pray. Father, it's easy to move so quickly from this moment. It's easy to move from Psalm 8 right back into our lives of busy parenting, busy work, busy ministry. But Lord, make us small. As we consider the work of your fingers, Lord. As we consider that you are mindful of us because of your own glory that you created us in. Let us wander from this place, Lord, with eyes open to what surrounds us. The Lord, we are created for you. 
and not for ourselves. That every aspect of our life is an opportunity to worship you. Our workplace, our home, our ministry, our friendships, our food, our money, our home, Lord, whatever it is, is to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for Christ, that he is the better Adam, the one who fulfills your law, the one who shows us what it means to bear your image and likeness on earth. Thank you that in him we are new creations, Lord, that we have the Holy Spirit to be obedient to your will. God, give us praise deep down in our bones, praise deep down in our hearts and minds. That, Lord, we will not forget your word as we walk, but it will be ever on our lips. We give praise to you. All worship is yours. All glory is yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.